millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to The Art Detective with me, Dr. Yanina Ramirez. I'm an Oxford art historian, a broadcaster, and a writer, but for the purposes of this podcast, I'm your chief investigator of images. Today, I'm bringing you something really exciting. So we've done some Van Dyke on this series. We've looked at um, portraits of people from the 15th, 16th century, but today we're doing one of my absolute favourites, Holbein. And I am joined by a dear friend and prior colleague, Jean Nicholine, Senior Lecturer in History of Art at the University of York. We go back a long way, Jean, don't we? Absolutely, yes. I remember when you were an MA student yep. many years ago. Yes. You inspired me. <laughs> you got you nearly seduced me away from the medieval towards the late. <laughs> I, did not, I, did, <laughs> not I didn't do quite enough. Oh, well. we'll have to make up for it today. We certainly will. This is really exciting. You suggested this painting to me. Um, it, it is an incredibly moving painting. When, when we, yes. I, I thought we would do Holbein together because that mm-hmm. is your your baby, really. That's what you're yes. writing on at the moment. Aren't yes, you? yes. Holbein. Um, my my family often tell me that I am married to Holbein <laughs> um, because I spend so much time thinking about him. I did my worst PhD. people to be married to. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, possibly. We'll talk about that. But um, yeah, but I did my PhD on him, and I published that as a book, and now I'm writing a second book about Holbein and science. So that will come out in the next year or two. That is going to be fascinating. Mm. But of all his portraits, I, I didn't know if you'd want to do the ambassadors or some of the more family portraits or even the royal portraits. But you didn't nope. pick any of those. What have you picked? I have picked his portrait of his wife and his two oldest children. And mm. this is, I think, um, a kind of counterintuitive choice because, you know, when we think of Holbein, we think of the Tudor court, we think of Henry VIII, we think of at least two of his wives. Um, we think <laughs> of, you know, the nobility wearing silks and satins and and showing off. Um, and I've very deliberately chosen his painting, which is the least showy mm. in that kind of way. He's showing his wife and children as ordinary people. And that's something that that he doesn't really do very often. And it's one of the few images that gives you a little bit of a glimpse into his personal life, about which we know very, very little. Mm. And, and just to position it a bit, date-wise, 
This is 1528, so it's sort of mid-career for him, isn't it? Yeah, so it's thought to be 1528 or 1529. So it was painted on paper. And Which is interesting. Absolutely. We must come back to this. It's painted it's... on paper, not on panel. Yeah, and the piece of paper was at one point cut out and pasted down onto panel, and we have lost the last digit of the date because of that. So we know it's 1520. Oh, you're joking. Right. They cut the number off. <laughs> yeah, so we have to kind of try to infer from the personal circumstances what the date would have been. Okay. And this is happening at a very interesting point in his life. So Holbein, he's born in Augsburg. He's one of um, he's born to a, a painter family. So his father, Hans Holbein, the, art, the elder, is one of the most important artists in Germany. But Holbein moves to Basel, Switzerland, and he spends the first part of his career there. Now, because of the Reformation... Um, the patronage of the arts becomes more and more challenging and difficult. And so he starts going off in search of patronage elsewhere. So we know that he goes to France, and it seems like he's hoping to get in with the king. That doesn't work. And then he goes to England. So he first goes to England in 1526. He spends two years in England. Then he goes back to Basel, and he's left his family behind mm. for those two years. He goes back to Basel for four years. And then he leaves them again, and he never returns except for one brief visit in 1538. Wow, this is absent father stuff. I mean, this is <laughs> exactly. this is interesting. So, um, I mean, obviously, it's, a, it's an incredibly complicated time Absolutely. that, that Holbein is, is living through. Absolutely. Um, such great changes, in, particularly in Northern Europe, but then moving over towards England. He is living through these, these incredibly important moments of, of reformation of change and, and the impacts that has on the arts. Because if you're losing a patron from the church... Mm. Mm -hmm. Who do you replace it with? And he yeah. is on the edge of that. He's trying to find a new place for himself, isn't he? Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the chief attractions um, for him, for a place like England, is he. I think he really wants to be in with the court, you know, with the full range of, of patrons that that can um, give to you. And and we know that when he goes to England, he has a recommendation to Thomas More. So he paints the portrait of Thomas More and a portrait of Thomas More and his family. And then he gets hired to do some work um, for revels, which are thrown in celebration of a new peace treaty in France. So in 1527, he's gotten into this really important court position where he's already starting to do some major work. And then when he later goes back to England, he ends up becoming the portraitist to the king. So that's the biggest gig in town. And, exactly. he, and he gets paid well and, you know, and he stays on. But I mean, what I find so fascinating about him is he's such a survivor because he Absolutely, keeps backing yeah. losing horses, like <laughs> painting the Moore family. Yes. Thomas Moore ends up being executed. Exactly. Painting Anne Boleyn, she mm. gets executed. And then, of course, I suppose the crisis point is, is that that famous portrait of Anne of Cleves, the yes. look how gorgeous she is, please marry her portrait. <laughs> and, then, and then you discover she's not nearly as attractive as the portrait. Exactly. Look. And that's a yeah. sort of a downfall moment. But but up until that point, he's able to constantly realign himself between, you know, humanist intellectuals, between the church, between different courts. Absolutely. He's a good player on this stage of patronage, isn't he? Absolutely. And I think actually, even with that portrait of, of Anne of Cleves, it's not him that falls. 
You know, he, he, as far as we know, he kept his position. And I suspect, I mean, when you really look at that portrait compared to his others, there is something kind of more idealizing and more kind of abstract about it. And I suspect that maybe Henry should have kind of realized that it wasn't, it didn't (laughs) quite have, you know, the vibrant naturalism of some of his other portraits. And maybe there was actually, I mean, you imagine like the process of doing a portrait like that. You know, the woman is sitting in front of you, all of her associates and the officials are kind of watching what you're doing. I mean, he couldn't do something that was too ugly, right? <laughs> well, so... you have to get out of there alive. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So... so maybe, oh, that's so, I've never thought of it like that, actually, because the idea that almost through his style, he's almost indicating to Henry that he is you know, sugaring the pills slightly. Mm-hmm. I haven't Absolutely. thought about that. Yeah. And this portrait that I've chosen to talk about yeah. is almost the diametric opposite. Well, this is why that. it's so interesting. And yeah. um, we are art historians. <laughs> we are serious art historians. And what we like to do is talk about the image. So Absolutely. What Spend a little bit see? of time. Yeah. So this is such an amazing image because it is not idealizing the figure. So we've got um, this woman who's... I mean, she looks like, like she's kind of approaching middle age. Mm. Um, she's her her face is very kind of reddish um, in a lot of ways. You see a lot of variation in color in her face that you don't normally see. And she's sitting with her two children, um, a little girl um, who looks to be about two years old, yeah, something like that. Yeah, certainly coming up to two. Yeah, and then a son um, who is probably standing next to her. And what's very interesting about this composition is that it reminds you of um, images of the Virgin and Child with John the Baptist or images of charity with her children. So there's something kind of monumental about it. And there's this completely black background. Mm. So the figures who are very subtly modeled are kind of emerging out of this darkness. And they have a really, really powerful effect. Mm. And... It's the background, certainly, that that, that, that I, I mentioned to you as soon as we opened up, because we're, we're looking at a very good reproduction, yes. obviously, in different versions of this painting, you can see it different ways, but the black of that background is mm-hmm. so stark here. Absolutely. And that, in a way, I mean, he is known for using darker back, backdrops and showing you know, very, very pale skin or sort of emerging out of it. But mm-hmm. I think that that makes these figures so much more monumental, that they're Absolutely. just against nothing. There's no props, are there? There's no props at all. Um, and it's interesting that, I mean, we, we can't know for certain if it had a black background before the paper was cut out and it was pasted down. But you can see there's a little bit of black that you can see through her veil, which oh, yeah. suggests that it was probably originally a black background. Um, And I think he's done that to, I mean, it's such an interesting balance in this painting between this sense of monumentality and importance of the way that the figures are modeled and composed, and yet they look like very ordinary people. Absolutely. The the contrast, yeah, the the setup, it it reminds you of a Leonardo, it's sort of like Mm, the Virgin and Child, but but there is this this humbleness, and it comes to these simple things, doesn't it? You you mentioned the ruddiness of her cheeks, the sort of tired lids on her eyes, but also gorgeous little details like I've noticed this baby has got a tiny little plait of hair that's just been pinned up on the side which is so homely it's so normal absolutely Um, and so it kind of brings it out of the sacral and back into the domestic doesn't it absolutely and the clothes that they're wearing as well kind of these muted colors you can you can see it's a kind of ordinary wear that someone from you know the kind of burger classes um would 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 wear so it has that that kind of everyday quality and yet the kind of importance um, conceptually, which mm. is such a beautiful balance. And I think we also need to talk about the expressions right. on the faces. Oh, yeah. So I mean, you were saying with her drooping lids. I mean, she almost looks 
looks as if she could have just been crying yeah. or something. Um, and the, the little girl also looks very sad. And she is looking off to the side kind of wistfully. And her hand is a little bit outstretched and her fingers have been kind of just cut off on, on the paper there. Mm. And then the boy also um, is looking up. Now, one of the fascinating things about this image is when you look through the surface of the painting using um, what's called infrared reflectography so that you can see the underdrawing, um, you can see that the boy was initially drawn further down and mm. he was looking straight across. And if you, you can maybe just barely oh, see yes, that there's gosh, a little bit. You can bit, just see on his cheek. You yeah. can just see in the center of the highlight of his cheek, the eye. So that would have been his version. eye line. Yeah. Um, on oh, the previous gosh. version kind of going going through. Um, and also what we know, the first time that this painting is described, it, it turns up it's mentioned in a court case, um, kind of as a secondary um, thing. And it's described as how Holbein in England portrayed his wife and children, which is, you know, what exactly is going on there? And um, one art historian, Jochen Sander, has argued on the basis of the fact that Philip was shown further down, was that initially this was conceived as a diptych mm. and a kind of full length diptych. So you would have had um, the wife and children on one side and Philip might have been kind of kneeling on the floor, perhaps. And then on the other side would have been like a self-portrait of, of Holbein at his easel. That makes great sense. Yeah. yeah. And so um, and then what we see in this version, I mean, what we don't know is whether he then kind of would have painted up a full version of that or if very early on he decided, no, actually, I'm going to get rid of me. And just show them. But there's almost a feeling of absence yeah. to me when you look at this. You feel as if, especially the children, it's kind of like they're looking to something that's not there. Oh, gosh. I mean, it's moving in as much as he isn't mm -hmm. there physically. Yes. But but now that you've pointed out that different eye line of, of the son of Philip, and then when mm -hmm. you notice that the daughter is actually looking across at something, yes. yeah, it is, it is. there is an absence. There's a hole in this. And that's, <laughs> that's, that's both real and suggested, isn't it? Oh, Absolutely. my goodness. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's, I, I, I wonder, is there any evidence that her face has been changed in the in the process because her gaze is is odd isn't it it's sort of downwards downcast. yeah and she looks a bit like she's kind of looking off in a different direction you know like she's almost kind of not quite there um no her face is, was always painted that way so even if it was planned with Holbein there she wasn't looking at him <laughs> which is in itself is very interesting it is and we need yeah. to give a little bit of, of background to Holbein the man Holbein the father Holbein yes. the human being cause... yes which we I mean he's one of those artists that we know a few kind of key facts, but we know very, very little about his, you know, subjective experience. We know that he would have gotten married um, to Elspeth, um, his wife, in about 1519 or 1520. Um, and it's thought that their first son, Philip, was born probably in 1522. Mm -hmm. And now the daughter, Katerina, or Catherine, she was probably born shortly before or shortly after Holbein left for England the first time. Now, there is a very interesting record that survives from the Franciscan nunnery in Basel. Um, this dates from uh, October, no November, 1527, where it says that the council, the city council, authorized payment to a woman who had been raising a child of Holbein the painter for a year and a half. All right, so that takes us back to this child being born in what kind of April, May, 1526. Mm. And so there's a question of, is that referring to Katerina? If so, why is the mother not able to take care of her? What's happened to Philip in the meanwhile? 
Or is that actually an illegitimate child? And the city council is actually helping, you know, this child to be cared for. And that kind of remains an open mystery. Well, that is a mystery because date-wise, these 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 children fit with the eldest two children. Kind of, but it depends on the thing. So if this girl is born, you know, in the kind of early spring of 1526, we know that Holbein is back in Basel by August of 1528. Eight, yeah. And so he paints it sometime around then or after then. That would make her like two and a half. Yeah. And yeah. I don't know, when I look at her, she looks to me more like somewhere between one and a half. And one and a half. Yeah, or even one and one and a half. She's she's very little. She's a baby, isn't she? And sat on a knee. She's not a toddler necessarily. Exactly. Um, yeah. This is absolutely fascinating because, of course, later in Holbein's life, he does indeed yes. have illegitimate children yep. and relationships other than with Elspeth. So this suggestion, maybe he began even earlier and had mm-hmm. an illegitimate child in Basel. Yes. It yeah. kind of casts a bit of a another... I mean, there is also the suggestion then that would this be Elspeth's hold? It would. It would be. This would be his legitimate child. Absolutely. So he wouldn't be de- ever depicting his illegitimate. No, offering. no, I don't think so. Um, and we also know that they then had two more children. Mm. Um, during that four-year period when he came back, and one of the things that's difficult to, I mean, in a way we have to just, just guess. Um, is at what point does he decide to leave? his family. Because I think that when he goes to England, you know, I think he's thinking about, you know, he needs to provide for his family. Um, so it's not, he's not necessarily thinking about abandoning them at that point. And then he comes back, he and his wife, they buy a house together, they buy another house a couple of years later next door. Um, and then also, um, when he leaves, the city council keeps hoping to bring him back to Basel. And they offer him um, a contract whereby if he comes back, they will pay some money and they will also support his wife right. while Holbein's gone. So you can see that he seems to be kind of thinking about his provision for them. Yeah, he's putting things in place. And and indeed, yeah. you know, at that point, they're a wealthy family with two homes, mm-hmm. um, a regular stream of income. Absolutely. But then, of course, yeah. he does go away again, doesn't he? Yeah, and, and, it's, and it's fascinating that there's this brief trip back that we know to Basel in 1538 and, and and someone says, oh, Holbein's back and he's now wearing silks and satins. Ooh. You know, he's now the painter <laughs> of the king, you know, so he's done really well for himself. But but he seems to only be there for a couple of weeks, you know, a month. Leaves again. As far as we know, we never come back. He never comes back. He, he then dies unexpectedly at about age 45 um, in 1543. And his will survives. And that says that he had two infant children at that point. Mm. Um, so obviously by that time, he had decided he wasn't coming back and and to me that also then raises this question of you know when this painting was made why was it made and it's fascinating that he's made it apparently at the point that he's come back to Basel and yet he's decided at that point to do a portrait of their sorrow at his absence millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom like Evan who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It is very, very strange when you start to look at the dates because actually this is 28, isn't it? 1528. Mm-hmm. And he, he does live up until 1543. And actually, that is a, a long period of time. So Philip would be fully grown. And mm-hmm. he's, as you say, he's got these other three children. But to be almost entirely absent for that whole time yeah. suggests that there is a fracture here. But am I also right in thinking that Elspeth actually sells this painting before... He's died. She doesn't. Yeah, I mean, we don't know. So it ends up being owned by um, a painter from Zurich, Hans Osper, and that's how we have this record that says it's it's showing him, you know, portraying his his wife and children in England. It's it's from that, and that dates to it's early 1543, and he's referring to um, having it in 1542. Right. So this is, you know, it's during her lifetime. It's during his lifetime. So obviously, at some point, she or he has gotten rid of it. (laughs) And then also suggests that, you know, that maybe by that time, you know, this is at a moment where it's clear that he's not coming back and maybe she wants to now, you know, get get rid of it. I mean, it's very intriguing, isn't it? Because... um, we're we're looking at at so many different evol- evolutions in in attitude in the church in religion. Mm. Um, I mean Henry himself, Henry VIII. Of course, we know mm. him and wives. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> but this idea yeah. that Holbein actually is is also going through this sort of fractured relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, as you say, that's all fair and well. It's all fair and well that that maybe his relationship with his wife isn't working. That he has had these children, but to paint them and and. Yeah. To choose to paint them in this way, yes, without idealizing them, yeah. What does that say to you about him? Well, what it says to me is that he's very keenly aware of the impact of his choices upon his family. I mean, I kind of feel like in this painting, he's confronting that. He's really thinking about the impact and his study of them. There's so much emotion in this painting in a way that you very rarely see in Holbein's portraits. He tends to really kind of push emotion out of his paintings. They're, they just show the sitters in this very objective fashion. Mm. And here it's almost as if he's he's really investigating, um, you know, the the impact on his wife and on his children and really thinking about it. And, and, you know, maybe that's why the painting was made. You know, maybe he's at a point where he's kind of thinking about, well, what's my long-term career going to be? Mm. What's going to happen to them in the meanwhile? You know, maybe that's why he painted it in the first place. And the fact that it's initially on paper 
you know, that suggests that it's meant to be portable. Portable, but also there's a transience to it as well, that it can be mm-hmm. removed, it can be... And I also think that um, it is so completely different stylistically that, 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 yes, maybe there is a sense of therapy or catharsis of working mm. through and contemplating them, particularly if he's not painting it back in Basel, but if he's painting it in England, retro- you know, thinking about them, imagining mm-hmm. them. Um, I mean, you're right that it does differ so completely from other examples and and one of the things, of course, is that there are no props because he does like his symbolism, doesn't he? Absolutely. I mean, the big famous one that we think of is is the ambassadors, the ambassadors with the yes. with the distorted skull in the foreground mm-hmm. and all the props yep. that that has. Yep. So, in a way, the absence of props is is one of the the other things here. But are we missing bits? Do you think this? So, if if this was bigger, would there have been a setting with other? elements around it do you think well I think that might have been the original conception um and and as I said earlier you know whether what we're seeing is what was once a larger kind of fully completed picture that's then been cut down or what we're seeing is actually what ended up being the final composition Mm. is really kind of unclear I mean I do feel that it it actually works really really well Mm. as a composition by itself and and almost I think if you did have you know like a, a second half I don't know. I kind of wonder, actually, if that would really be quite as effective as as just as painting. But also, it provokes the question of what's the use of this diptych? Because mm-hmm. what this is this is what seventy seven centimeters by sixty four. It's big. Yeah, it's pretty. It big, is pretty yeah. big. And where is this gonna end up? I mean, well, what does he want to do with this? Have like an altar in his <laughs> house? Him and his wife. I don't know. Yeah, and, is, and it, has he designed it to take with him or to leave behind? Mm. Or yeah, and I think it's it, it's really mysterious. And to me, actually, the mystery is one of the things that I love about this painting. I mean, every time I go to Basel, it's in Basel in the Kunstmuseum. I mean, I just think it's one of the most beautiful paintings mm. of all time. And there's something deeply compelling about it, but also something that you just feel like you can never quite get at what is it that's going on I mean it makes me feel quite anxious it's got a sense of anxiety to it that a lot of his Mm -hmm. paintings don't give me I I, I mean you've you've worked on his his paintings extensively Gina and over the years I've kind of tried to keep up with some of the things you've been saying about them but but there's always these these wonderfully um posed compositions these very composed people Mm -hmm. people who seem to be in control of their destinies despite the fact that most of their destinies are up for grabs (laughs) at this point Mm -hmm. Um, I mean we could contrast this couldn't we with his portrait of the Thomas More of Thomas More's family. Yes, absolutely. Which is a very yeah. different composition, isn't it? Completely different. Um, and that's a case where um, I mean, we don't have the final um, finished painting because that was destroyed, but we have these amazing copies which seem to be very exact. Um, and that's a case where you've got Thomas More, you've got various members of his family kind of sitting around him in an interior space, and you have lots of, you've got um, books, you have you know, musical instruments, you have a clock hanging on the wall. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff there. And we can kind of, because we've got some of the studies for that, we can also trace the process by which he he did these individual studies of each of the figures and then kind of composed them in an artificial way. So when you look at the painting, it looks as if he's arranged them all, you know, in the living room. And family like, photo. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it kind of looks like a family snapshot. But when you really examine it, it's clear that actually he's just, he's planned out the composition and he's done studies of each of them. He's slotted them in. And when you really look at it you can see the little ways that they don't actually quite 
fit together. Like for instance, if you really look at the modeling of the figures, some of them are lit from different directions. Ah. And it seems like, you know, when he did his, his studies of them, he's, he's, you know, done them in different positions and with different lighting situations. And then he hasn't bothered to change that. He's put them together. Because nobody notices. Nobody notices. There's something very interesting that we were, that I was exploring in another uh, podcast as well about this idea of the English taste for art Uh that actually in a way, they're not the most sophisticated consumers of art. And so mm-hmm. a, an artist can maybe deliver something not as fine or as finished because they might not know. What do you <laughs> <laughs> well, possibly, but I do think in the case of Holborn, I, I mean, I think pretty much everything he does is just of the most exceptional quality. And the ways in which things, when you look at them closely, don't quite fit together. I think that's actually an intention on his part to kind of make his art something beyond just a kind of snapshot. Mm. Do you know, so when you look at a lot of his images, I mean, like the ambassadors, other than the distorted skull, people often look at it and and are like, oh, this is almost like a photograph, you Mm. know, from the 16th century. But I think for Holbein, art is about making something which isn't just a replica of real life. Mm. Like it often has a, a, a sensibility as if you're seeing something exactly from real life. You sort of feel as if you could reach out and touch that person from the 16th century. But I think that he's actually subtly manipulating things. He does this with with perspective all the time, where when you really think about it, his perspective is very weird. But it's not so weird that you immediately think, oh, there's something wrong with it. It maybe just gives you a feeling of, oh, there's something just, you know, not quite just ordinary. There's something a bit more important about this. Well, this I think this is why he fascinates me as a medievalist, because mm-hmm. I think what, you, what you've got in some of his images, certainly and definitely in this one, is a sense of um, ideological transition playing out in, in different artistic means. So mm-hmm. he is someone who would have grown up it very much part of, a, of the church of the of Catholicism of this this sort of approach to religious art symbolism of art having a narrative art having a, a deeper transcendental sense behind an image mm-hmm. and then yeah. having to adapt that to the new approach which is it takes a long time before Protestant art really finds itself or works out what it's trying to do. But he is one of those people on the ground working it through himself. Absolutely. And I think in different images, there are some images where you can really see that it's a kind of, you know, inventive, very stylized um, kind of image. And then there are other ones where it looks as if it's trying to be very naturalistic, objective. And I think that he's using those different styles, you know, for different purposes and really thinking about what is it that art does in different contexts and what effect is it trying to have? So I think that he's someone, you know, even though we don't have kind of written treatises from him explaining what he's doing, when you really analyze his artwork, I think he's thinking really, really carefully and deeply about what he's doing. Mm. And and interestingly, of course, with him, there isn't a school that grows up around him, is there? No, no. And that's isn't. quite rare at the time. Yeah, absolutely. I think there are people, certainly there are people who admire him and who have worked with him back in Basel, who kind of try to work in his style. And then you've got certainly a taste for him his portraits um, kind of later in England. But to be honest, I think part of the problem is that he's so good. Mm. You know, like he's just, he's such, you know, technically amazing and just the kind of overall effect is so amazing. And I think that he's just an artist that people can't really quite copy. You know, they can try, but but somehow they just can't quite capture the magic that he does. And again, I think one of the interesting things we look at with Holborn is when you see a moment in history, I, I think people 
who study history like to find lines in the sand. They like mm-hmm. to say, this is Anglo-Saxon, this is medieval, this is Renaissance, we're moving forward. Um, and, and what's interesting is when you get these artists who have feet in different different influences, yeah. and his influences are very varied, aren't they? But, mm-hmm. but particularly mm-hmm. in as much as he's, I think he's seen as a Renaissance artist of the North, a Northern yes. Renaissance artist. Yes, absolutely. But in his in his incredibly hyper-realistic brushstrokes and use of oils, he's coming out of this medieval panel painting tradition, isn't absolutely. he? Absolutely, People yes. like Van der Weyden, people, you know, mm-hmm. this idea of showing in such realism with yep. such minute brushstrokes, yep. tiny, tiny details that only really comes out of the North at that time, doesn't it? Yes, yeah, and and um, and that those artists also develop techniques, you know, for re- reproducing, especially effects of different kinds of texture and the way that light plays on different surfaces. I mean, that's something that Italian artists, I think, aren't quite as interested in. At, at least they're not skilled in it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, and I think that Holbein is looking to those traditions, and his father also looked to those traditions as well. He, he definitely looked at Netherlandish painting and kind of integrated it with with German models. And we could always take it back to manuscript illuminations and mm, the art of miniature mm-hmm. that evolves yep. so much in that area that that you do. They're almost painting with a single hair at times, aren't they, to yes. get the detail in. Yeah. And Holborn does similar things. I mean he, he does he he's very focused on detail in other examples. Yeah, and he also does, he does works on really different scales, and he also works some in woodcuts, so he designs woodcuts, and so, like, his Dance of Death woodcuts, I mean, those are tiny. Yeah. You know, they're really, really small images, but he packs so much into them, so so he can do detail on that kind of level. There are also some um, miniature or small small drawings of his that survive, but then he can also do large scale as well, so he's someone who can who can really kind of play at all levels. I and think. he does design, doesn't yes. he? Because he designs jewellery. He does, he yeah. Made a cup. For Berlin, yes, he does all kinds of amazing things for the court. Um, most of which I think sadly don't actually survive. I really wish I could go back in time and <laughs> see all of these things that he was designing. But he's almost—I mean, he's almost Dura-esque in that in that ability to turn his hand to different mediums. Yes, but, yeah. um, but but again, it's—I think it's the the complexity of the world changing around him mm-hmm, that is mm-hmm. is having such an effect on his work. And primarily, of course, he is. A painter, the, yes, you know, a, a, such an accomplished painter. Absolutely, and unlike Durer, he doesn't cut um, prints himself. Mm. So he designs things and he does drawings, but he leaves that kind of technical execution of prints to other artists. Whereas Durer is someone who is painting and drawing and making engravings and making woodcuts. You know, he's someone who's really experimenting with all those different media. Well, if you're married to Holborn, I've, I've got a secret crush on Durer. <laughs> although I've now admitted it now, that's self-portrait. Good God. <laughs> Or the one in Munich. The one, yeah. yeah. The one where he looks Christ-like. The one where he's got the long, beautiful, the long, hair. beautiful hair. He is, uh, yeah. It's very hard not to have a crush on Jura in that one. <laughs> but no, I think, I think with with Holbein, it's is to me, it, he he documents a time that fascinates so many people, and also, mm-hmm. of course, you. There is a reason we come back to Henry VIII and the Tudors and the yes. Six Wives again and again in mm-hmm. television and in, in all sorts of historical fiction is because they're fascinating and because mm-hmm. actually yep. those human relationships are are projecting something that is taking place on an ideological and a social and a political level um through through romance through through you know, human pain human experience and he is the painter through all of that absolutely and it is because of him that we know what all of those people look like I know, I know. amazing i know yeah. 
June, we could talk all day. <laughs> this has been amazing and we will have to do some more. But I'm so glad you chose this painting. It's it's deeply moving and, and a really special artwork. So I'm, I'm so pleased we've had a chance to discuss it. Oh, I'm so glad we could. It's been good fun. It has been good fun. Thank you all, Art Detective listeners, for the listening to this uh, you can follow me on twitter i'm dr yanina ramirez and you sub- can subscribe to the podcast by going to historyhit.com slash art detective subscribe and there are more wonderful art history treats coming your way soon bye all even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.